Uh, welcome, everybody. Uh, it's good to be back doing uh, this uh, series on discipleship and uh, equipping series, looking at just the whole area of Bible study methods. Uh, today we're going to look at, uh, finish off last time we were here, we're going to look at uh, the canonization of Scripture, you know, how, how come we've got 66 books and there's only 66 books, and what's significant about that. And then we'll get into uh, our lesson three, which uh, we'll start looking more broadly at, at Bible study methods and at the whole area of uh, the historical, literal methodology when it comes to interpreting Scripture. So prior to us getting to that, we'll obviously look at basic uh, principles of interpretation. Because you'd, you'd all be aware, as we... Uh, whatever church you go to, you, you get different interpretations. So is there one way to interpret God's word? Uh, is there and that's what this term hermeneutics it's a it's a term that's been used by theologians probably for the last fifty or sixty years. And they say, okay, what what is your hermeneutic? You may hear that if someone speaks to you they'll say, okay, what's your hermeneutic? What they're saying is um, how do you interpret God's word? And there's many, many methods. Uh, as a church, actually within our doctrinal statement, we say uh, we will interpret scripture in a historical, literal, grammatical way. That's what we, as an eldership and leadership, determine is the way we're going to um, handle God's word. And we'll talk about that and explain that. So um, let's just uh, open in, in prayer and then uh, we'll get into to some of the stuff. Father, we uh, thank you for uh, this opportunity to, to meet together, to stretch our hearts, stretch our minds. And Father, we don't want to be a people just with a whole lot of head knowledge. Uh, we want to be people who uh, draw deep into the well of your word uh, so it shapes our hearts, shapes our minds and has a change in our actions. And Lord, that's our heart. And we say, we pray as we just talk through some of these things today, that we'll keep that in mind, and uh, we'll look consistently to you uh, to provide guidance uh, as we interpret your word. So we thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, as you um, it's been a while since we've met together. Uh, we started these sessions by looking at um, inerrancy and textual criticism, you know, so that's a real foundational thing. And uh, last time we met, we looked at inerrancy in a little bit further depth. And we, we didn't get to doing looking at canonization. So that's what we're going to do today, briefly. So what do I mean by the canon? What, what do we talk about? We so say we have the canon of scripture. Books that were deemed to be inspired by God and were the sixty six books chosen by the group of canons or whoever they were that said, Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's that's a pretty good definition if you if you think through uh, what is the canon. That would I think a really good theological meaning of the canon is the recognition of that sixty six books that we have in the old and new testaments. Uh, that are the authoritative standard uh, for our faith and practice. That'd be a good definition. So it's the authoritative standard for our faith and practice, and it's limited to the 66 books we have. You know, and we have different views on that, even in uh, across church history. You know, see, the Roman Catholics they have an expanded view about this. Uh, Roman Catholic theology embraces three equally legitimate sources for Scripture. Okay. Uh, or sources of authority, actually, not for Scripture. Uh, three illegi- uh, legitimate sources of authority. The Scriptures themselves. Uh, the body of tradition, which is wrapped up in how the church operates, would be the second thing they will uh, bring into this debate. So that's you know sort of something that's accumulated through the centuries that of interpretation of scripture, and it becomes the official church's doctrine. 
So an example in Catholicism would probably be their, their view on Mary. Okay. It's not driven from Scripture, it's driven from the church tradition. Uh, so that's uh, something they call the uh, magistratium. So you might hear, hear that in, in Roman Catholicism. They, they may refer to authority in the, the magistratium which is really just church practice. So scripture is not the sole authority. You've got of equal value the history of the church and how they've interpreted scripture. And the third area is uh, the Pope speaking. Uh, And they call that ex cathedria, or from the chair of the cathedral. So in these very rare occasions, and there's only been two occasions in the, the Roman Catholic Church in 1854 in relation to the Immaculate Conception and in 1950 in relation to the bodily assumption of Mary. Uh, the Church would see the Pope speaking with the authority of God in that situation in what he conveyed was therefore of equal value as to scripture, church tradition, and his little word. So that's uh, that's one attitude towards uh, canicity. So when you think about that, uh, Roman Catholicism does not believe the canon is closed. Okay, it's still open. Because the Pope could make a dictate or... Uh, church tradition might change and that will have the same weight of authority. Uh, yeah, liberal, um, liberal Protestants, they will take a naturalistic view of the canon and say the Bible is just a human book. So the canon is simply a human invention uh, designating certain books to be divine. So that would be a liberal view, because they don't a naturalistic view. They don't believe it is the, the um, inspired, inerrant word of God. It's just musings of men that God has used, if you like. You have um, a neo-Orthodox view. And it's what they call the encounter view. Okay, So like the liberal view, the neo-Orthodox believes the the process of how we got our canon is entirely human. So when it says, when they take that position, the Bible itself, according to a neo-Orthodox view, there is no inherent authority in the Bible because it's come from man. But they have a bit of a conundrum here because they say, however, the Bible becomes the word of God and thus is authoritative whenever the reader spiritually encounters Christ in his writings. So that's the way they preface it. So they say it's the experience of... So it's a a reader response that makes God's word authoritative. I suppose what we've been discussing, no, God breathed it out. It's not the response of you and I reading it, it's God's revelation of himself. Um, With the verses we have discussed in the past... And then we have the evangelical view, uh, what we would call the recognition view, that the Bible writings were authoritative as soon as they were written. Yeah? As soon as the, the author penned them, they were, they were authoritative. Why? Because they were inspired by God. Um, they were recognised in a historical process also to be canonical any questions about those sort of four attitudes towards the canon yes James Brown asked whether we take the last one and we answered yes (laughs) when we get things such as say the Old Testament when we get things such as in the Old Testament where it says, for example, Abraham went up to Dan, 
Dan didn't exist at the time, so this was a correction of you, might be after you know, when Joshua come back into the land, as they're writing and correcting. Uh, is this inspired as they as it's been corrected and translated as well? So, 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 so you've heard the question that uh, the name of the place changed. That's what you're saying, right? The name of the place changed, and, and later, later copyists have have changed the name to reflect the modern place. So, Kilsai South was once upon a time called Ringwood, and uh, that was recorded in Scripture. And as the copying the Old Testament. Uh, the copier says, oh, that place no longer exists, so now we'll call it Kilsyth South. That's the type of question you ask, so is it inspired? Well, clearly it's not. Right. The original writings were inspired. Because the original writings dictated that place as a certain place at that time for a historical purpose. It's only the later writers who have altered it so you and I would understand where that place is. So the original autographs would have been correct. It doesn't change the inspiration. That's just a copyist saying, oh, okay, I want to make it easier for, for those who are reading to understand where the geographically that place is. And the question I'd have about that is, um, does it actually inherently change the meaning of the text? No, it's just a descriptor of a place. So, yeah, good question. Okay, we'll move on because we've got a little bit to go through. Uh, the formation of the Old Testament canon, we'll look at that a little bit. You know, our... Our present Hebrew Bible contains a threefold division of the Old Testament. Does anyone know what that threefold division is? We, we get it in Luke chapter 24. Jesus says, says it when he's on the road to Moses. Uh, can you remember? Yes. Yes. Or writings. So the threefold division, and the, the group here has answered that correctly. They've said the law. Which is the Torah, okay, known as the Torah amongst the Jewish, uh, the prophets, which is known as the Nebulin, N-E-B-U-I-I-N, that's the English acrostic for the Hebrew word Nebulin, and the writings, which is known as the uh, Keth Yublim, so K-E-T-H. U-B-I-I-M They also give it another name uh, call it the Hagiographia uh, That's another terminology for the writings Now it's not uh, it's not a, a traditional way we would understand it because for instance where would you put the prophet Daniel under that categorization? Is it Torah, is it prophets, or is it writings? Daniel, well, we would... Don't we take all the straight from the Jewish, the old Jewish... Yeah, 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 yeah but I'm saying, they, they would they categorise, they, they categorise it. All of them in prophets. They actually didn't, not with Daniel. No, so it's kind of interesting. So, uh, so No, it doesn't matter, but that's, you know, for instance, we would put it in, in Daniel because we'd understand it as a prophet, but they had a couple of things which they would not include. Like, so they wouldn't include Daniel, they included Daniel in the writings as opposed to the prophets. And, um, and so that raises a couple of questions. Um, why? Why a threefold arrangement? And why is Daniel, which is clearly a prophetic book, not in the prophets? Uh, so there's been debates over the years about that. Uh, I don't think we'll go into those debates. If you want to have a, a think about that a little bit later, we can, we can uh, chat on it. Uh, it's not overly important. But it is to be noted that there's threefold division. It's uh, how we've got our, our uh, present-day Old Testament. So that also comes to the question, okay, when does this stuff get canonised? Because that's a long period of time, right? From the law which was given to Moses in, say, 1500 BC to the last psalm that we have recorded uh, by the rivers of Babylon where we sat down. So we're talking 
post-exilic 520 in the writings, and then you have the Minor Prophets, which are even closer to 400 BC. Okay. So you've got, a, you've got a, a wide range of time. So uh, what they did is they, uh, it's believed, they, they sort of canonised the, the law quite early. The Torah was formed and canonised by, by perhaps 400 BC. I would say probably a little earlier. Uh, so that seems to be the uh, you would you would hope so, but it wasn't actually canonised as that until a little bit later, as the nation formed and thought about it. You know, uh, we, we would say traditionally uh, that yeah, at fourteen hundred BC when it was complete that that would be the time it was accepted because yeah, even in Moses' last speech to his people in Deuteronomy he, he has discussed these first five books you know, many, many times in an oral tradition across his people he had 40 years to do it he, he would have communicating this and uh, so I would think that Pretty close to 1400 BC would have been the Torah in its complete state and was being used in temple worship and things like that. Uh, the prophets and the writings were probably had, had to be cleared by somewhere around 400 BC because we know there's a period of silence between there and the New Testament of 400 years. Uh, so that's where that occurs. Uh, it's interesting you. Yeah, as you think through the Torah, have you ever heard the word uh, Tanuk in Jewish writings? Okay, well, Tanuk is just an acronym for the law, the prophets, and the writings. And it's the first two letters of the of the um, Torah, Nebulim, and Kerabithim. makes up the acronym Tanuk. So if you hear... Uh, Jewish scholars say, uh, okay, referring to the Tanukh, that's what they're referring to, the Old Testament scriptures. It's just something else to, to have a, a think with. Uh, there's obviously, um, yeah, and, and under just something so you're aware of, they don't have as many books as we have in our uh, in new, Old, Testament. Old Testament, yeah. Okay. Uh, they join them. So first and second Samuel oh, joined. The text is still there. Yeah, yeah, the text is there. First and second Samuel are joined, first and second Kings are joined, first and second Chronicles are joined. So they actually come back to twenty four books as opposed to the what do we have? How many books in the Old Testament? Thirty nine. Uh they do some other things. I I think they join uh Esther, Ezra and Nehemiah are joined in the Tanakh. Uh, what else is joined? Esther there. And the twelve are joined. The twelve minor prophets are joined as one book. And Esther's not there? Uh, Ezra Esther's there under the writings. Under the writings, yeah. There's a debate between, early, early on there was 22 books according to the Tanakh and then they added, but then it became 24 because Esther got added. And uh, Song of Songs, I think. Yeah, History Song of Songs. They were the ones they were wrestling with for memory. Yeah, so that's just some of the the formation around there. So uh, traditionally, the, the Jewish Bible would have 22 or 24 books. We have 39 because we explode out the 12 minor prophets predominantly, and we explode out Chronicles and Kings and Samuel. And we take apart Ezra and Nehemiah to make up our 39. So, we have the same. So the books they didn't include still would have been read, still be important, but not saying as canonical. Would that be true? Like, they wouldn't say not read them. Like, we have books that we say are really important for us to read, yeah. and it forms our opinion. 
uh, and also to the text, you know, and it's been throughout the history of the last two thousand years. So important to read this book, you know, uh, for your Christian growth or Christian understanding and etc. Oh yeah, they, they had many of those sorts of writings from the rabbis, absolutely, to, to help interpret yeah. what is, like we have commentaries, we have whatever, you know, that, that they, that's not new to the 20th century, no. that's been going on for centuries. So because it wasn't canonical, it was banned? No, no, and we'll talk about that, we'll talk about uh, Jewish interpretation methods when we get into hermeneutics, they, there are three or four different ways they would look at scripture. It's important for us to understand that. Uh, the other thing that, uh, and Josephus, I always get his name, Josephus. How do you say it? Josephus. Josephus. Yeah, yeah, I've got an F, but jo, Joseph, Joseph the historian <laughs> of great fame in the, in the New Testament period. He had 22 books in his uh, Old Testament canon. And there's strong uh, reason for that is there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Okay, so he, he squeezed them into 22 for that very reason, tying it to Psalm 119. Look at Psalm 119. Just to see, so if you look at Psalm 119... You see a really uh, wonderful poetry form. If I was to say to you Psalm 119, which we know is the longest psalm, longest chapter in our Bible, what would be the overall focus of Psalm 119? Do you know? Word of God. And it's divided into 22 sections. And you even see in your in your Bible, you see the name of the Hebrew alphabet. So you got Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Dala, He, Wa, Zenith. So you've got them all there. So I think what Josephus has done is he's taken, okay, Psalm 119 is pretty important. Uh, this is inspired. I'm going to make sure our canon fits into the, the Hebrew alphabet. That's just uh, something that has been done there by him, particularly. But there's always been this debate. So to, to do that, he, he put um, Jeremiah and Lamentations together. Uh, I'm not quite sure. And he put Judges and Ruth together. Yeah, so he put Judges and Ruth together and he put Jeremiah and Lamentations together from the original 24 to make it 22. So there you go, that's just a, something to consider. So, you know, why do they include the books they included? That's always the question, isn't it? Uh, they, had, they had all these writings, uh, so how did they determine the canon? You know, there's threefold division, as is, is Highly likely it was there because of the uh, synagogue reading plans and their worship. They would tend to take a, a, each, each Sabbath, they'd take a reading from the law, they'd take a reading from the prophets, and they'd take a reading from the, the writings. So it's a stylistic thing. But that doesn't tell us why and how they declared this as the canon, this as the word of God for that period of time. Uh, because they clearly closed the canon. Uh, they, they closed the canon at, at 400 AD or even, even a little bit later than that. Uh, what's that, sorry? 400 BC. Well, 400 BC, when, uh, they would say this is when it stopped writing, and then they, they had the Jewish Apocrypha and Studiographia that came in that period, right? So we'll talk about that a little bit later. Apocrypha means hidden. It's a group of books written between the Testaments, the Apocrypha, whose material is often considered secret or hidden. Uh, there's nine of those books. Uh, rabbis, however, never, ever considered the Apocrypha canonical. Never, ever. 
I said, these are just musings. These are just to help us while God's not speaking to us. Well, this new God stopped speaking to them because there was no prophet coming up and saying, thus says the Lord. You're scattered. So, uh, yeah. And then the, the uh, pseudiographia, or false name, is a group of writings written under a false name, e.g. Enoch, to give it added merit. So Enoch didn't actually write the book. Someone else wrote the thing and said, okay, I'm, to get some credibility, I'm going to use Enoch's name. Okay, so see, yeah. What's that? They didn't see that as a corruption, but I thought that they saw it as not still a legitimate book to read. Still a legitimate book, but they say it's a false name. That's what the name pseudiographia means. It's, it's a false uh, name given to, the, to try and give weight to this this reading. So if you're like me, writing a poem and saying, uh, I am Wordsworth. I'll name my book of poetry Wordsworth. Okay? <laughs> It'd be sort of that sort of similar thing. Uh, so, but neither uh, Jewish nor Catholic Christians give the pseudiographia canonical status. But Catholics give the Apocrypha canonical status. So if you grab a Catholic Bible, you will still see the Apocrypha, you'll see, see, still see the nine books sitting in there. If you get an older King James, they'll be in there. Look, they'll have the nine Apocrypha books sitting in Is there. Is that because it says something they particularly love? Uh, yeah, perhaps, perhaps. Um, yeah, I, I don't know why they would... I think it goes more to, to how they interpret Scripture because these things are all about hidden meaning. They, they look, they're not, they're not from God, but the musings of men trying to develop allegories or typologies to mean something spiritual. And uh, it's interesting... Um, yeah, and this sort of came, this came a bit from the likes of Augustine, or Augustine, I don't know which way you'd say it here, you can say either. He was a, an amazing theologian, uh, 300 AD, one of the, the key apostolic fathers. He, he helped form views on Trinity and all those sorts of things. But he believed the, uh, the Apocrypha was... Uh, Canonical. Even though it wasn't written by an apostle, it wasn't those sorts of things. So yeah, there are certain sorts of rules or prophet, even though it wasn't written by a prophet in this situation, was considered that way. I think uh, Jerome, when he wrote it, yeah. he included it, but he didn't canonize it. He was also helped to understand it. Then later they. Well, the Catholic Church canonized it. They, 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 they took that, and they, they didn't take that till the Reformation, actually. All right, so when, when Luther and uh, Calvin stood up and uh, the pre-reformers, Wycliffe and those sorts of guys, they said, no, we're, we are standing on the Word of God, and this is the Word of God. These are the 66 books. So at the Council of Trent in the mid-1500s, uh, that was a Catholic council in response to the Reformation because obviously their whole power base has been eroded, right? Uh, because you don't give men the Word of God. You don't, you, you don't give them the Bible. You know, we as a church, we have as much authority as the Bible as we discussed right at the start. You know, the Pope has as much authority as the Bible. A church tradition has as much authority. How do you, 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 you give the people the Bible? We, we are the ones that will instruct and so in, in that Council of Trent, they agreed to keep the Apocrypha in their scriptures and use it for doctrinal purposes. Yeah. So, so that's just a, a couple of uh, things there. You know, uh, I don't think it'll do much more than that. So we've still, we've still got this question. We've still got this question, how was it canonised by the Jewish nation? 
Why did they pick these things? Well, I think it was pretty simple, really. The Torah was given by Moses. That's why it was given on Sinai. So it's not just the Ten Commandments that were given on Sinai. Right? We have this view as, what was this too tempted to sustain? No, the whole five books were given to Moses. You don't spend 40 days in the mountain getting Ten Commandments. You get the whole rule of life. As God used Moses as his mouthpiece to say to his people, this is what I want you to do. And Moses wrote that down and uh, gave it to his people. So the Torah is never disputed that it's from God. Likewise, the prophets are never disputed because they come proclaiming a message, thus says the Lord. All right, so all your prophets have that preface. So from a Jewish perspective, they say, okay, God has spoken to you directly. God has used you in this way to declare judgment upon the nation or blessing upon the nation or whatever it might be. So therefore, uh, they've been given canonical status. The writing's a little bit more difficult. Okay, the, the poetry, the, the songs of praise and all that sort of stuff. How do they say, okay, this stuff, how do they declare 150 psalms as the canonical writings versus 300 psalms? Because no, there's many more written. How do they declare only 31 chapters of Proverbs as wise sayings of sages when there's many more? How do they de declare, um, you know, even Job is under the writings? How do you declare that as, you know, the 41 chapters as the immortal testimony? Where did that testimony come from? And uh, really, uh, the issue, I, I guess, is God has revealed those things to those making that situation because they started using psalms of predominantly godly men of Israel. David, 73 out of 150. You had one from Solomon, you had from Sons of Agar, you had, uh, and then you have a, a numerous amount of anonymous ones. And um, the Aaronic priesthood at the time would have had a huge play in determining that. So we do say the verse that God moved men by the Spirit, yep. both in the writing then choosing the kind of Absolutely. coming about and interpreting it as a broad yeah. thing happening. Yeah, there's a broad and thing. And the keeping? Sorry? And the keeping and the protecting? Yeah, absolutely. It's all God's spirit. Yeah. To give us what we have. So, and what they had back then. Yeah. Uh, yeah. New Testament. So, how did we get our New Testament canon? The discussion on New Testament canon is a lot easier than the Old Testament. Okay, because we've got a, a few things in the uh, the New Testament which are far easier for us. The, the process is described in the New Testament itself, which is kind of helpful. Uh, if you had Revelation 22, 18 to 19, and, and Luke 1, 1 to 4, it's been written. Okay, the process has been written. Second Peter three sixteen says that it's collected, and Second Peter three sixteen and Second Thessalonians three fourteen says then it's recognised as God's inspired word. You see, the historical process um, for canonisation in the early church was primarily looking at historical events. Well, did, did the New Testament picture historically what happened? And uh, it's by the second century there existed a general consensus that uh, most New Testament books were divinely authoritative. All the four Gospels were considered divinely authoritative. Acts um, 13, and only Acts 13, which is kind of interesting, <laughs> by 200 AD was considered as authoritative. The Pauline epistles were all considered authoritative. 1 Peter was, 1 John was, and those ones were unanimously accepted by both um, the Eastern and Western Church at that time. By the 3rd century, a wider consensus started to occur. And uh, 
This is through the, the greater spread through the geographical area, the Western Church, and from many churches, not just simply individual. And then we have something quite significant in the 3rd century called the Muratorian Fragment, which we have a copy of. And uh, that document affirms the wider consensus of the canon, and it consisted of the canonical lists which included all the New Testament books that we have currently except for Hebrews, James, 1 and 2 Peter. However, it would also include a non-canonical book, the Apocalypse of Peter. So, 2nd and 3rd century, we're starting to, to get more to what we have now. Uh, things that uh, were important in the whole process of determining whether it was canon was, uh, uh, hey, these eyewitnesses are dying. Right? So from the, from the time of the apostles, uh, the, these, uh, these eyewitnesses, those who have seen what Jesus has done, those who have seen what Paul has done, those who have talked with John and, and, and those sorts of things and with Peter, there was a real need for a accurate record to be preserved. Okay. Uh, clearly, we needed to have a canon because of the rise of heresies. Every time you, you had men thinking about different forms of, of truth, which is false. Uh, many of the heretical fractions were forming their own list to suit their purposes. There needs to be a consensus. Um, and many, there's a proliferation of many Christian writings, as you talk this People were writing, 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 writing. And it made it incredibly important to determine what was helpful and what was authoritative. Yeah. So there's, a, there's wonderful there, one called The Shepherd's, Shepherd of Hermes. It's a wonderful book. And they really wrestled with the fact, was this, is this actually part of the canon? But they came down and said, no, they can't, because it's, he's not an eyewitness account. But it was that sort of uh, issue that was going on. There were some, some beautiful writings happening at the same time, and need to be this division made. And I think also there was a complete existence of a, an Old Testament canon, so this made uh, a formation of the New Testament canon a, a legitimate and logical step. Okay. And also, persecution of the early church made it absolutely essential to define the body of truth by which they were being persecuted. Yeah. What are you willing to die for? You think about, we understand persecution like it happened in those early days. And they were staking their lives on the fact that they believed that this was God's revealed word. So it's important to have that as a, a, a canon. I think by the 4th century, uh, and some of those uh, significant church councils, so you have one in uh, Laodicea in 363, one in Hippo in 393, and one in Carthage in 397. They clearly affirm the canon as we have it now, the 27 books. Uh, the 363 one actually affirmed 26 books, they left out Revelation. But by 397, it was the major council in which all of the books we recognise as canonical. And so you've got men like Athanasius, you've got the, um, the three Cappadocians, uh, Gregory, Gregory and Basil, I can't remember their surnames, but I know them as three Cappadocians, and they were tremendous in coming to these councils and, and uh, determining, helping determine what was canonical. So the criteria they were using to do this is the authority does this book claim to be God's word inspired of only given uh, apostolicity was it written or by or under the supervision of an apostle it's another thing they thought through so was there an apostolic witness from the 11 
plus Matthias plus Paul. Was there an apostle? Is he an apostle born out of time? So was there a, a witness by them that this letter or this book or whatever it might be is uh, written by them, truthful? Accuracy, is it consistent with the rest of Scripture? It's an important point to consider. So is the message received consistent with everything else that we have? Uh, spirituality, is it an active and powerful, powerful, is it leading the reader to conviction, edification and evangelism? That was another thing they used to try and determine. And acceptance, is, is the acceptance general, widespread and sustained by many godly churches and individuals? Yeah, um, men moved by the Spirit and, and, and through this process of determining what was truthful. And, um, yeah. So the question I have for you, so, you know, there's uh, a historical consensus had to, it had to occur. And um, that's what occurred in those first four centuries. You know one of the amazing things is, and we talked about this in textual criticism the other day. If you read all the writings from the apostolic fathers, you know what I mean by apostolic fathers? Those, those men in the first 800 years, but predominantly the first 300 to 400 years post um, Christ's ascension. If you read their writings, and you can get them everywhere, you could, from their writings, produce a New Testament with the 27 books, because they, they're quoting, you know, as they do their commentaries, and as they write, they quote verses. You could actually produce your New Testament from their writings. It's pretty phenomenal when you think about it. It's a miracle in itself. Uh, so that's another pretty strong proof of the canonicity. So a question for you, is the New Testament canon closed? Yeah. All those here have nodding their heads in agreement. Yes, the <laughs> canon is closed. <laughs> Which is a is a good thing. Uh, to consider because not everyone considers that, right? Well there are main churches that have added their own books, therefore they have considered yeah. closed. Yeah. Well, it's a disaster. Yeah. So you have a Mormon background who's done the same thing. You have uh, probably Jehovah's Witness have tinkered with the text as opposed to added anything. They've rewritten and interpreted verses to suit their views on the divinity of Christ. Uh, but, you know, even more frightening at some point in time, I think if you look at extreme Pentecostalism, the whole word of knowledge and, and revelation from God, if, that could go awry. Okay? So if you were in that extreme end and saying I'm having a word from God it could relate to actually I don't believe the canon is actually shut because that is happening as opposed to actually no God has fully revealed himself here and now through these books so it's something to consider in that, in that there well, I think just a couple of things I want to say about the complete nature of the canon. You all agree, so I don't need to prolong this. Uh, I think the New Testament canon is complete because all necessary revelation given during Christ's walk on this earth is in our canon. And it's a, a strong thing to think through in that regard. Um, you have post, as we, we talked about, we would say the canon's closed, so therefore the Quran is not some new writing from God. Book of Mormon is not some new writing from God. And uh, 
you know, a lost New Testament book. What happens if 3 Corinthians comes on the scene? Or 4th Corinthians? What happens if we start doing an archaeological dig and we fall down another cave and we find, oh, this is 3rd or 4th Corinthians? Would then we open up the canon? Do you wonder why God had left a pen 2,000 years from Exactly. He's revealed what he wants to reveal. Yeah, exactly. It's an interesting uh, thing where I don't know whether it's Tertullian or Irenaeus who actually was holding on to Enoch and pushed him into the camp. But it came to the end of his life and he said, This is what I really wanted. But I realised that I'm on the very narrow margin of this and I'm happy to give it up. So this idea through spirit and of um, not having a crowd spirit pushing them to have books included, uh, the spirit of actually recognising the body of the church, uh, and God working through the body of the church to select the canons. Also, a miraculous sign. It's part of the process, isn't it? Part of the process of of the God-breathed, God-inspired nature of what we've got, what we've got. And, and I think it's also a reflection on how the canons are chosen again to get a few of the some maybe the books were written, but not in the sense of uh, there's no reason why some of the books couldn't be written and put together and over a period of time just as the canon was chosen and seen by the community yeah, and that's an internal work of the spirit for for a collective. Yeah, absolutely. That can mean rod, rod or measurement. Canon can be rod or measurement in the original language. Yeah. really good thing I didn't actually mention that but the, the literal meaning from Greek is canon is what we have it's, it's very similar to English in Hebrew it's um, kinet and uh, it has the meaning of rod, reed and by inference measuring rod or yardstick so that's where we get canon from it's our yardstick and it hence the theological meaning we came up with it's uh, it's authoritative and a standard for our faith and practice. It's our, it's our rod, it's our yardstick. This is what God wants for us. Yeah. It means that the other white things that does not follow in, some of it may be inspired by God if they correlate with this room, but some parts may not. So the whole thing is rejected, can't accept it as a canon. Mm. The canon contains the word of God, not everything that God says. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but absolutely right, because we cannot contain it. You know, John chapter 20 is exactly like that. I've written these things so that you may know and believe that he is the Christ. But, you know, if I try to write all things, there's nothing that could contain what I saw. And that's John's testament. And, and that, 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 that's it, you know. Okay. Well, folks, we have a, we have a, um, a conundrum. We finished lesson two. We could hold lesson three to next week, or we could do half of it, perhaps today. Entirely up to you. We can hold off and do the whole lesson next week, looking at the whole um, biblical interpretation and uh, process of hermeneutics and those sorts of things. Entirely. Your guys call. Okay, so when do you want to finish? It's five o'clock now.
So we go for another 20 minutes, maybe? I don't know, can you time me? <laughs> no, I've got, I got my time here. Trust me, trust me. <laughs> so, 15 minutes or 20 minutes? 15. Okay, let's go for 15. Okay, since we started late, so that's fair, that's fair. Okay, let's go to uh, the, uh, notes on lesson three. It's called Bible Study Methods and Historical Literal Methodology. So just going to fire straight into this. Um, so we've changed the uh, original title a little bit, and we're going to primarily look at the history of biblical interpretation, some of the principles in that, and then start opening up what does hermeneutics actually mean. How do we study the Bible? And this is where it's going to become more practical over the next four or five weeks. How do we, we're going to do some lessons together, have a look at applying some of the things we talk in, in, uh, with hermeneutics. So yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, that's fine. So, what is uh, biblical interpretation? It's always a good question to ask. Um, And we'll look at a bit of a historical overview since the time of Christ. I just want to say, what are the tensions in biblical interpretation? First, I'll just give you uh, four very quick tensions that we face all the time in interpretation. And you see this in, in practical application. Because you'll get into debates with people on theology, and, and if they don't like what you say, the final line is, well, that's just your interpretation. All right? Have you ever been in a debate like that? Well, that's just the way. Yeah, yeah, it's either opinion. Yeah, that's that's another one. But normally, if it, if it's a a fellow Christian with a, a different uh, view on doctrine or a different view on the Bible, I, I've had it many times with me. Oh, well, that's just your interpretation. So, I guess the question, the fundamental question there is: there is there only one way of interpreting God's truth? And I'll leave that with you. I'm not going to answer that. I'm not going to answer that because I think over the next four or five weeks we will answer that question. But that's the question, isn't it? Is What's the art and what's the way? God has revealed his word in a written form using the parameters of language, syntax, grammar, genre, all those things. And uh, Why? So you can understand the intended meaning of the text for life and godliness. See, the study of how to study the Bible in the end is all about applying it. It's not about just studying. And uh, that's what we hope to come through today. So what are some of the tensions? I've, I've given three or four, I think, tensions. I think there's a tension between a systematic or what I would say a learned interpretation and an unsystematic way of interpreting the Bible. So a systematic way will say, okay, I'm going to take my exegesis, this is where I wish I had an whiteboard, but an exegesis is when you go into the scripture, you look at the grammar, you look at the syntax, you look at the discourses, you look at the paragraphs, you look at the words, and that forms your view about what the author is saying to his original audience. Right? Because this is a historical document. The Ten Commandments, the law, the Torah, wasn't written to you and I. We don't have Moses standing here and saying, this is my instruction to you. Right? So you have a historical nature in what is happening here. And the whole of the Bible is like that. The authors, prophets... Apostles wrote to a people at a time and a place for a particular purpose. But because the Spirit of God grabs us, that application of that purpose can go 3,000 years this way and say that is just as applicable for you today and now. But um, this is... Uh, and to, to, to understand that, you've got to have a system. I would say you have a system of 
exegesis first, and then you have your historical theology, what have other people said about it, then you build a biblical theology, what are the links between the testaments or between the themes, and you'll finally get to your systematic theology at the point of a triangle, if you like. If you had a triangle like that, you have your foundation stones, your exegesis, then your historical stuff, then your biblical stuff, and then finally your systematics will flow out of that. If all this stuff here has been done well. Um, you've, got a, you've got a page there. Another writer, Andreas Kostenberger and David Patterson, who have written an excellent book, and it's in your bibliography. If you're really interested in, in this type of topic, if I was to recommend one book, this would be the one I'd recommend. Okay, And it's uh, Kostenberger and Patterson, Invitation to Biblical Interpretation. Exploring the triad of history, literature, and theology. So he breaks the study of hermeneutics into those three areas, theology, history, and literature. And under literature, he has the greatest depth of analysis. So he looks at canon, and he looks at genre, and he looks at language. It's a great text to start with if you're interested in this. So all that will come will flow through that. Okay? He will say you've got to look at this through the lens uh, of culture. Uh, another one, the second one you, you have down there is Grant Osborne. This is the textbook I had to go through at, at seminary, The Hermitual Spiral, and, and Osborne's text was written in... I gave you a uh, bibliography there. Where is, uh, I think it's 2000, oh, 1996, I think, maybe. Whereas no, 2006 and Kostenberg is 2011. And Kostenberg, I'd advise in that one because he used a lot of this material and just refines it. But the hermeneutic spiral, he, he's put it in this way, and that's the graph on the bottom, where you have your exegesis, developing into your biblical theology, going into your systematic theology. And he would underpin the lot with historical theology. So I probably wouldn't agree with that. I think historical theology comes after exegesis. Go and look at the text first. Always look at the text first before you start forming an opinion about what it's saying. Don't be influenced by history. Because if you do, you start going down the way of the Catholic way, right? So history becomes equal or greater than scripture versus scripture itself. But that's another book. Uh, this is kind of humorous when we uh, when you get to chapter two in this book, he, it, it's on grammar. And no one likes talking about grammar. No one likes uh, working through that. And he starts this chapter in this way, which uh, I thought was very unique. And I can't even find what I was going to say, but he, in essence, says this is likely going to be the most boring chapter you'll ever read. <laughs> and he was right. <laughs> but uh, that's okay. So that, that's, uh, that's one of the tensions. What is systematic and what's unsystematic? And unsystematic tends to be a very popular use of a biblical text. So you just grab a text, you apply it to yourself, you haven't done any study, and say, well, that's what it must mean. Right. I'll give you a classic example. Five minutes to go. I'll give you a classic example. How often have you heard um, the phrase, and perhaps in a worship service or whatever, uh, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst? Right. You may have heard that if you've been around our church culture for a while and prayers and what have you. Uh, when you hear that, that's a popular use of a biblical text, but it's out of context. Okay? Because the context of that particular verse relates to discipline. Matthew 18 talks about a discipline process when there's a conflict between a brother and a sister. He says, well, firstly, go to them and, and talk to them about that. And if, there, and if there is no reconciliation, then take someone else with you. And if there's no reconciliation with that process, then take your elders with you. 
and then there's instruction about, well, if that's not working, you may have to take a severe step and say, hey, we're just going to have nothing to do with you. So whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven, and therefore we're two or three are gathered in my name, and I am in the midst. That's the context of the verse in relation to church discipline and reconciliation process. Yeah, sure, the truth that Christ is always with us. Even then it's contextually wrong, right? So what if I'm by myself? Is Christ still with me? Yeah, absolutely, because the Spirit dwells within me. Absolutely. Well, he's in the midst of, he's in the midst of what? <laughs> so you know what I mean? It makes absolutely no sense when you use it in terms of trying to enlist a, a worship arrangement there. Or say, okay, well, come to the prayer meeting tomorrow because we're two or three gathered. Christ is going to be in our midst. Well, where was he when you were driving towards the church? Was he on your midst? Of course he was. The Spirit of God dwells within you. So you know what? So that's that's what I mean by unsystematic and, and popularizing a verse and taking out a context which is not good biblical interpretation. Now, with that one, it's harmless because it's not going to go off and you're not going to have heresy, right? It's not going to be heretical. But some can be heretical if you go that way. Um, other, another thing that you need to consider in uh, tensions in biblical interpretation is exegesis versus eisegesis. Now, you're going to hear me talk about a lot of this in the next little while. Exegesis is when we take the Word of God, we look at the Word of God, we look at the sentence structures, we look at the, the discourses, we look at the pericopes, we look at uh, the genre, and we, we study it to see what comes out of the text. Eisegesis is the opposite. Eisegesis, and you spell it with an E, believe it or not. So eisegesis is E I S E G. E-S-I-S. Whereas exegesis is E-X-E-G-E-S-I-S. So you're going to have exegesis and eisegesis. So what is eisegesis? English words to replace those? No, they're the only ones we've got. They are English. You know what, for years I thought you spelled eisegesis with an I. Makes sense to me. Yeah. But you know what eisegesis is? The problem with eisegesis is, okay, I've had this experience. I've had this wonderful experience. That wonderful experience must be a blessing from God. Okay. So I've had this experience, it's from God, therefore I'm going to go into the scripture and find out where that is. That's eisegesis. You're imposing from the outside into the text. So you're removing the context, you're removing the historical, lyrical, grammatical approach to scripture, and you're saying, actually, it's my experience that determines the text. It's reader response. And that's not a correct way of doing the scripture. Okay, so uh, that's our 15 minutes. We will stop there. No, we won't. We're going to finish A. <laughs> uh, there's obviously also the tension between the unity and diversity of scripture. I won't talk about that at length today, uh, but we will come to that. It's, a, it's an important tension that happens. And there is a, also a tension in the text and its context. And I just gave you some examples of that, of how that can work. The text and its context, that is always a tension. So because this thing was written a long time ago, We don't have the ability to say to Paul, what did you mean? And we're talking about this. What did you mean when you said um, a woman must have her head covered for the benefit of angels? You know, for the benefit. What did you mean by that, Paul? I have no idea. Paul's not here. But that, that's the difficulty of text and context. Because clearly, when he spoke that to the Corinthian church, they knew what he was talking about, right? They knew. Yeah, you can generalise and say there's principles here, etc. But we actually, we struggle to understand the context. We don't know what their worship environment was like. It was not in. We can make some educated guesses. Or but, so, do 
Yeah, you research and you can you you can you can go to you can go to many other parts of scripture that probably have nothing to do with it. That's the issue, isn't it? You've got to determine the context, what do they understand it as? That's the important thing. So that's that tension between text and context. You know? So there's just a little quote there for you. The church today must remember that the text of scripture stands in a creative tension over and against the context of the world in which it was produced. And to which it now speaks. In this way alone, it is the message likely to be heard in our time as it was heard in the past. It's a great quote. I'll let you think through that. Hey, thanks for coming out. We will continue this next Sunday.